morning. If you have your Bibles, I'd invite you to turn to Isaiah chapter 41. We're going to pick up where we left off. Uh, Isaiah chapter 41. We're going to be reading verses 1 through 20. This is the word of the Lord. Listen to me in silence, O coastlands. Let the peoples renew their strength. Let them approach, let them, then let them speak. Let us together draw near for judgment. Who stirred up one from the east whom victory meets at every step? He gives up nations before him so that he tramples kings underfoot. He makes them like dust with his sword, like driven stubble with his bow. He pursues them and passes on safely by paths his feet have not trod. Who has performed and done this, calling the generations from the beginning? I, the Lord, the first and with the last, I am he. The coastlands have seen and are afraid. The ends of the earth tremble. They have drawn near and come. Every one helps his neighbor and says to his brother, be strong. The craftsman strengthens the goldsmith and he who smooths the, the hammer smooths with the hammer him who strikes the anvil, saying of the soldering, it is good. And they strengthen it with nails so that it cannot be moved. But you, Israel, my servant Jacob, whom I have chosen, the offspring of Abraham, my friend, you whom I took from the ends of the earth and called from its farthest corners, saying to you, you are my servant. I have chosen you and not cast you off. Fear not, for I am with you. Be not dismayed, for I am your God. I will strengthen you, I will help you, I will uphold you with my righteous right hand. Behold, all who are incensed against you shall be put to shame and confounded. Those who strive against you shall be as nothing and shall perish. You shall seek those who contend with you, but you shall not find them, for those who war against you shall be as nothing at all. For I, the Lord your God, Hold your right hand. It is I who say to you, fear not, I am the one who helps you. Fear not, you worm Jacob, you men of Israel. I am the one who helps you, declares the Lord. Your Redeemer is the Holy One of Israel. Behold, I make you of you a threshing sledge, new, sharp, and having teeth. You shall thresh the mountains and crush them, and you shall make the hills like chaff. You shall winnow them, and the wind shall carry them away, and the tempest shall scatter them. And you shall rejoice in the Lord, in the Holy One of Israel, you shall glory. When the poor and needy seek water, and there is none, and their tongue is parched with thirst, I, the Lord, will answer them. I, the God of Israel, will not forsake them. I will open rivers on the bare heights and fountains in the midst of the valleys. I will make the wilderness a pool of water and the dry land, dry land springs of water. I will put in the wilderness the cedar, the acacia, the myrtle and the olive. I will set in the desert the cypress, the plain and the, and, and the pine together, that they may see and know, may consider and understand together that the, the hand of the Lord has done this. The Holy One of Israel has created it. Thus far the reading of God's word. Let us pray. Most gracious Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for the opportunity to come and to study your word, to worship you, to see you high and lifted up, Lord. We pray that you would be with us now as we consider your word. We pray that your spirit would be among us, applying it to our hearts, that you would 
uh, be near to us and grant us grace for your nearness is for our good, Lord. Thank you for the opportunity to be here with your saints, Lord, and I pray that you would help me to serve them well and to honor you. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, it's good to be back with you uh, this Lord's Day, and uh, I was asked if I wanted to give some, some songs or some ideas, but after they did such a great job last week, I thought, why would I get in the way and give songs? So I thought I would just step back, and it's amazing to me in how in God's providence and in uh, the care of people, how... The, the elements of worship tie together to uh, what we're focusing on uh, today. And I should tell you that up, up front that uh, no gators were killed in the making of this message. But I want to tell you a story about a gator hunt that I was on. So for my 12, one of my son's 12-year-old birthday, we went to go hunt gators. And uh, one of the things about hunting a gator is, uh, well, it's not so much finding a gator in Central Florida, right? Sometimes you get a guide because you want to know where to look, right? You want to know the fishing spot. You want to know where to go. Well, in this case, I live in Central Florida, right? The problem is not finding. By the way, this was all legal. There was, there were, there was, it was all legal, sir. Um, now, the problem is not finding a gator. The problem is, is what do you do if you get one, right? That's the problem, and so I was talking to my sons, and I said, you know, what we're doing today is not, it's a unique day. We don't just do this any day. We're doing this because we have this cowboy with us. We had a six-foot-five cowboy. He had an awesome, epic mustache. My, my beard blushes in its presence. And, um, but, you know, I'm talking about a real cowboy, not, not fancy boots and line dancing. I'm talking about rides a horse ropes wild boar, drives cattle on a ranch, like real deal cowboy. And I told my sons, I said, now today we're looking for gators. But remember that we're able to do this because Mark is with us. Don't think that just because you come across a gator in any other scenario that you sort of have experience or that you know what you're doing. We're doing this today because he knows what he's doing, because his presence is with us today. And so it was a unique experience. And we're looking at a passage today in many ways that, that deals with something that God consistently does throughout Scripture. So often he meets our needs, meets our needs by not telling us that he's going to work everything out or that he's going to give us some sort of special gifts or special powers. So often he assures his people by saying to, to them, I will be with you. The difference is really his presence. The difference is the presence of the living God. When life is difficult and you need uh, courage to fight another day, we live in a world that wants to say to you, you have all that you need, all this unlocked potential, you have all this special power inside of you. If you could just sort of dig down deep and find what's missing. I'm sure you're all wonderful and I think all of you do need to reach your potential, but God does something consistently different in his Bible, in, in his word, he doesn't say, look deep down inside. He doesn't give us a pep talk and say, you're more special than you think you are. He says, no, take heart, find courage, for I will be with you, or I am with you. God promises and encourages his people with his presence. God encourages his people by promising himself to his people, by promising his presence. Do not be afraid, for I am with you. God gives God to his people, and it is the greatest gift of all. I want to look at this passage under two basic headings. In 1 through 7, we see a reason to fear. 
in verses 8 through 20, we see a call uh, to courage. So first we see is a, a, a reason to fear in verses 1 through 7, where God will call the coastlands to his throne. Remember, we just had this great vision of, of, of the unique nature of God, that there is none like him, and how the nations are like, uh, are like drops in the bucket before him. And now this God speaks to the coastlands and says, Come to me in silence. Listen to me in silence, O coastlands. Let the peoples renew their strength. Let them approach. Then let them speak. Let let us together draw near for judgment. God is coming and summoning the people for judgment. In the ancient Near East, the most fundamental, one of the most fundamental things that a king was supposed to do, when I talk about the ancient Near East, this is the context in which the Old Testament was written, okay? And one of the most fundamental things that, that, that the king was supposed to do was to execute justice. He was the primary agent of justice for, in, in, in many of their belief systems, the gods. And in this case, uh, God, Yahweh himself, he is presented as king of Israel and his king will execute justice for him. But it's a consistent theme, you see, that the king is supposed to execute justice, to decide cases. And, um, and so when you approach the throne or the, the palace, the king, in judgment, it is an ominous thing. It is dangerous. It is scary. Uh, one example of that, I could give you numerous examples, but one example is from a recently published uh, cuneiform tablet related to the Epic of Gilgamesh. We've known the Epic of Gilgamesh for some time, but occasionally there is a, a tablet that's discovered, and it adds a little bit more of the story. It fills in some of the, the little breaks or the lacuna that were there. And, and it tells particularly about the, the incident where Gilgamesh and his friend, his um, Enkidu, go to fight the monster Humbaba. If you're confused already, don't worry, just focus on the main point. There will be a quiz later on, because on, you know, last, a couple weeks ago I was giving you homework, so now we're going to do quizzes uh, as we're kind of upping our game. Um, but Humbaba, as they approach, they hear this cacophony of, 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 of animal sounds. They hear, hear, they hear monkeys and, and birds, and as they approach, Enkidu and Gilgamesh begin to tremble. Gilgamesh opened his mouth to speak, saying to Enkidu, Why, my friend, are we trembling like weaklings? Why do we tremble after we have come this far? Even Gilgamesh and Enkidu tremble as, they, as he enters into the court of Humbaba. That's what we understand now is that as he hears these sounds of, the angel, of, of all these animals, they're approaching the king's court. And that's how it was in the ancient Near East. That's just one example. It's an ominous thing to be summoned before the king. Well, the king of all the earth, of the heavens and the earth, is summoning the coastlands into his presence, and they are to be silent and then give him an answer, to give him an account. He summons the coastlands to meet him in judgment. In verse, verse 1, he addresses the coastlands and remember who the coastlands are. In verse 15 of chapter 40, it says, The nations are like a drop in the, of the bucket. He talks about the dust on the scales. Behold, take up the coastlands like fine dust. Taking them up like fine dust. That's what they are before the Lord. So God calls them near to judgment. And he tells them to renew their strength. And already you should be thinking of an echo because you just read about those who renew their strength, Right? Verse 31 of chapter 40, but they who wait for the Lord shall renew their strength. So God says to the coastlands, come, renew your strength. Now, the very fact that he says renew your strength sets a great contrast between them and the living God. Remember that he says of himself, 
The Lord is the everlasting God. He does not faint or grow weary. His understanding is unsearchable. The very fact that they have to renew their strength speaks to the fact that they're finite, that they have limitations. They're prone to want, worn out, and they're summoned behind, before the God who does not slumber, who does not sleep, who does not wear out, and he says, renew your strength. Meet me in judgment. It's like Zechariah chapter 2, verse 13. Be silent, all flesh, before the Lord, for he has roused himself from his holy dwelling. And then in verse 2, there is verses 2 and 3 is this mention of a figure who will come from the east and, and whom victory meets at every step. Now, um, I was riding one time with my, one of my sons, a uh, different one of my sons, and he asked me, Dad, do you ever disagree with Calvin? I was like, sure, sure, I disagree with Calvin. He's like, when? I was like, I can't think of a time. But, but I know that I do on occasion. And, and this is actually one of those instances. So now we've thought of two. Uh, instances where I disagree with Calvin. I'm sure there are more, but, um, but Calvin and some of the older commentators thought that this was a reference to Abraham coming, okay? And so if you read like Matthew Henry or John Calvin on this passage in the commentaries, which I encourage you to do, then you'll see that they thought of this as Abraham, but it doesn't really fit what's going on here since he doesn't, he doesn't um, give up nations before him, and it doesn't really fit the reference to Abraham as the friend of God a little bit later. In fact, what is going on here is, is it's an early reference to Cyrus, uh, the King Cyrus. Um, Cyrus will be mentioned here in verses 2 and 3. He's mentioned again in 41 verse 25, but he's only named later in 44 verse 28. Stylistically, Isaiah, uh, Isaiah has a tendency to do this, to introduce someone gradually and then only later name them. So this is referring to Cyrus. There's another king who's coming, right? This, this time Cyrus, and victory is in his wake. But verse 4 peels back the curtain a little bit. So another kingdom, you've got the Babylonians, the Medes, the Persians. Then as you read Daniel, you've got the Greeks and you've got the Romans. You know, but here in verse 4, God peels the curtain back of history a little bit. And he says, who has performed and done this? Calling the generations from the beginning, I, the Lord, the first and with the last, I am he. The Lord is the one who raises up nations and brings them down. Remember Isaiah chapter 40. Remember the book of Daniel. He says, I'm the one who has done this. I'm the one. Remember how Isaiah 40 was drawing upon creation in the Psalms. Well, here, is, um, here God is the one who calls out the nations at the first, in the beginning. The Lord, he is the beginning and the end. Even as nations rise and fall, it is important to remember and to know who was seated upon the throne, that he is the great actor in history behind all of these events, the cause and the source. Indeed, Daniel's visions of the rising and the falling of kingdoms was important for the people of God to understand because this life, it's full of changes, and they needed to know that there was a kingdom that was to come that would endure and that would be forever and ever. The people of God needed to know that as nations rise and fall, God is seated upon the throne and his kingdom endures forever. And then verses 5 and 7, you get this response from the coastlands. What are they going to do with this knowledge as God summons them in judgment and as, 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 um, as, as Cyrus is going forth in victory? Well, the coastlands, it says in verses 5 through 7, have seen and are afraid. This is this reason to fear. 
The ends of the earth tremble. They have drawn near and come. Everyone helps his neighbor. So they're strengthening one another and says to his brother, be strong. The craftsman craftsman strengthens the goldsmith and he who smooths with the hammers, him who strikes the anvil, saying of the soldering, it is good. And they strengthen it with nails so they cannot be moved. Remember how the description in chapter 40, you put your God there and if you've got money, you get like a fancy idol and you bow down and you worship it. If you have less money, you try to get a rot, uh, an idol that doesn't, you know, just of good wood so it doesn't rot because you don't want your gods rotting, right? That would be inconvenient. So here they are responding to in fear, and so what they do is they lean into the idolatry all the more. And it's a humorous, it's a humorous example, or it's a humorous event. They're sitting there, and they're strengthening one another, and they're, they're putting nails on their gods so that hopefully their gods can be piped up and not fall over. And that's what they're doing in their fear and in their trembling. Is they're looking to the works of their hands, trying to support their gods so that they will not topple over. And while the scene is very humorous, it actually lays out the futility of idols. And we face the same temptation to lean into our idols more and more as their futility is exposed. Uh, when your money lets you down, what do you tend to do? Try to go get more money. When your security lets you down, what do you try to do? Maybe you take out an extra insurance plan. You try to take out more security. When your work lets you down, you throw yourself into it more and more. So often when we, are, we, we meet the limits of our idols, we're just like the nations, like the coastlands, sitting there and getting our hammer out and trying to make the metal stand right and getting the soldering just right and adding nails to it, trying to make them hold up. We lean into them again and again. Tim Keller is really helpful in thinking about all of the idols of our hearts. He says, you fill in the blank. Life only has meaning. I only have worth if, for example, I have power and influence over others. Life only has meaning if I, I only have work if I'm loved and respected by others. Life only has meaning. I only have worth if I have this kind of pleasure experience, a particular quality of life. Life only has meaning. I only have worth if people are dependent on me and need me. Life only has meaning. I only have worth if I'm completely free of obligations and responsibilities to take care of someone. Whatever it is, we all feel those things in our hearts that we've committed ourselves to in such a way that when they start to fall apart, we feel like we have no worth and we have no meaning. And our tendency is just like the nations to throw ourselves into that idolatry more and more. Whatever the sin is, whatever our idols are, when they're exposed, when your idols are threatened, I suspect you struggle with looking to them all the more, serving them all the more faithfully. And and instead of looking to the one who sits upon his throne and scoffs as the nations rage. So then where do you look for courage in a time of trouble? Well, we have a call to courage in verses 8 through 20. Um, Tim Keller in his uh, sermon on uh, David and Goliath refers to courage, and I think it's a great definition of courage, is, is doing the right thing no matter the cost. Doing the right thing no matter the cost. And because he, he, he talks about how you can be courageous in one cert situation, in one scenario, and be a coward in another. You might be courageous on the battlefield and take the hill. 
But you might come home and be a coward in your day-to-day life. You might be courageous in one area, but a coward in another. And he says that doing the right thing, no matter the cost, is true courage. I remember I was working for my father. I was recently graduated, uh, recently married. It was before I went to seminary, and I was working for my father in uh, asbestos, a small asbestos company. So, like, lead, asbestos, mold. If it'll kill you, we would do it. I, I always thought that would be a great, mo- you know, like a motto, but no, it, it never really took. Um, but, but I remember there was an account that I'd worked particularly hard for that we really needed. And I felt this, this, this um, it was kind of a low point in the business in, in certain ways. And so I, I felt this pressure because... You know, whatever I did, whatever I said was also reflective of my mother and my father and their situation. And I was on the phone with, with someone who we had just done a job with, and it was one of those uh, time and material jobs where you sort of, the, you, you get paid a certain amount based on the equipment that's on the job and everything that you do. And so it's, it can be quite a lucrative, a lucrative job. And, and the business owner was telling me, he said, well, put this on your report and bill them for it and bill me for it so I can bill for it. And I said, well, those things weren't there. And he said, I know they weren't, but put them down anyway. I said, I can't do that. And he yelled at me, and he cursed at me, and he hung up the phone. And it was hard. But it was the right thing to do, even though it came at a cost. And those of you who are in the business world, those of you who are in day-to-day life, you experience that from time to time. And it's not easy. But true courage is doing the right thing no matter the cost. And the people of God needed to hear this. They needed to find true biblical courage because you know what? Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, they were going to have to be in the fiery furnace. And Daniel was going to have to hang out in the lion's den. And Esther was going to have all of her people's lives resting on her position and her relationship with the king. If they were going to be faithful, they needed to have true courage, true biblical courage, rooted not in their circumstances, not in the idols of this world, But in the living God who says, I will be with you. If they were going to do the right thing, no matter the cost, they needed to know that God would be with them in the fire. They needed to know that God would be with them in the lion's den. They needed to know that God would be with them as they wept by the rivers of Babylon. Be strong. Be courageous, for I am with you you. But you, verse 8, Israel, my servant Jacob, whom I have chosen. You see how he's talking about the relationship that he had with God. This is what it's like with the coastlands. As they seek to hold on to their idolatry, he says, you, you are my servant. I have chosen you. He's not giving them a pep talk, is he? He's not telling them, dig down deep, pull up your bootstraps, you've got this. No, he says, remember who you are. And remember that I am with you. So much like in Zechariah chapter 3, where Joshua, the great high priest, is standing before the accuser, and the accuser is accusing him. When God goes to reassure him, what does he do? He says that I have called you. I have chosen you. You are mine. That's the great source of assurance and courage, is what God has done, not what we can do, and not who we are, but who we belong to. God took them from the nations, and he says in verse, in, in verse, uh, verse 
9, you whom I took from the ends of the earth and called from the farthest corners. This is, this is going to be a second exodus. No longer are they going to say, like, you know, the God who brought us out of Egypt, but the God who brought us from the, the far distant countries. He says, I'm going to bring you back. You are the one whom I'm bringing back. The exile was not the end for the people of God. So he tells them, fear not, verse 10, for I am with you. Be not dismayed. Now, why do they need to hear that? Because they're going to look around at their circumstances and they're going to be tempted to be afraid. And they're going to look around at their circumstances and they're going to be tempted to be dismayed. And he says, fear not, for I am with you. Be not dismayed, for I am your God. That's the heartbeat of covenant theology, that relationship. I will be your God and you will be my people. I am yours and you are mine. I will strengthen you. Remember the nations, the coastlands, what are they supposed to do? Strengthen themselves, right? But who, who finds strength in the Lord? Those who wait upon him. He says, I will strengthen you. I will uphold you with my righteous right hand. He tells his people not to be afraid. Why? Because they're talented, because they're resilient, because they're powerful. Because, um, no, he says, do not be afraid because I'm with you. Because I'm with you. As the nations cling to their gods in fear, God comforts his people and says, I will be with you. Do not look to idols. Look to him. In Ezekiel, there's a great image that sort of helps us understand the tragic nature of the exile. God had chosen the temple as the place for his name to dwell, and his presence was there. But in judgment prior to the destruction of the temple, what happened? The, the, the presence of God in one of Ezekiel's visions moves out from the Holy of Holies toward the outer court and then goes and rests east on the mountain. It's a tragic moment because the people of God are going to be kicked out of the land. They're going to be, uh, their temple is going to be destroyed. Their lives are going to be upended. Many of them would die. It's a tragic moment because the thing that made Israel special was God's presence. It was a tragic and sad moment. But in Ezekiel eleven sixteen, it says this, Therefore say, thus says the Lord God, though I removed them far off among the nations, and though I scattered them among the countries, Yet I have been a sanctuary for them for a while in the countries where they have gone. You see, the God who called Abram out of Mesopotamia, the God who spoke from the burning bush, the God who thundered at Sinai, the God who wandered in the wilderness with his people, the God who drove out the nations before them as they entered into the promised land, is the same God who went into exile with his people and is the same God who would bring them back. And then in verses 11 through 16, there are these contrasts between the people of God and the nations that have set themselves against them about how they're, no longer, they're going to look to see their enemies and they're no longer going to see them. Why? Verse 13, for I, the Lord your God, hold you your right hand. It is I who say to you, fear not, I am the one who helps you. Fear not, you worm Jacob, you men of Israel. I am the one who helps you, declares the Lord. Your Redeemer is the Holy One of Israel. The God who exalts and brings to nothing. 
these truths about God fleshed out in, verse, in chapter 40 are then applied directly to the people of God, and they're reminded and told about who does all of these things. Yahweh is the one who will deliver his people and defeat all his and their enemies. In verse 16, it says, You shall winnow them, and the wind shall carry them away, and the tempest shall scatter them, and you shall rejoice in the Lord, and the Holy One of Israel you shall glory. Even as God does and accomplishes all these things, the people of God are called in to rejoice and share in his victory. And then in verses 17 through 20, it says, when the, when the poor and the needy seek water and there is none and their tongue is parched with thirst, I, the Lord, will answer them. I, the God of Israel, will forsake them. Does that make you think of anything? Have the people of God ever been in a wilderness thirsty? Needing help, needing provision. Well, just as in, the, in, in Egypt, as God fought for his people and then he brought them out, well, you wonder, can he provide for them, right? He can fight for them, but can he provide for them in the wilderness? And the answer is yes, as, as water flows from the rock or manna rains down from heaven. And that's exactly the idea, the similar imagery here is in the wilderness, they're thirsty and they need help. And God is going to cause this lush landscape and water to flow to care for the people. I will open rivers on the bare heights and fountains in the midst of the valleys. I will make the wilderness a pool of water and the dry land springs of water. Isn't it amazing that how God says, I'm going to give to you myself, basically. I mean, that's the greatest gift of all. If God is saying to his people, don't be afraid. Here's the greatest thing of all. I'm going to give you myself. But what does he offer, also offer to them? He says, when you're poor... Come to me. Come to me in your need. When you're thirsty, come to me in your thirst. When you're hungry, come to me in your hunger, and I will care for you. He, is, he gives the greatest gift of all, of all himself, but he still meets the basic needs of his people. I, I think sometimes we spiritualize things and act like, well, I just need God, and I don't want or, I don't want or need anything else. But, but God gives himself and all of his greatness and all of his sufficiency to his people, and he still says, ask of me. Come to me. Even as you're staring at the greatest gift of all, the Lord Jesus Christ, Right? And his disciples say, Jesus, teach us to pray. Give us this day our daily bread. Forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. Ask of me. Come to me and I will satisfy you. It's not just like a little bit of water flowing, is it? It's paradise. Springing up from the wilderness, from the barren wasteland. And all of this, verse 20, that they may see and know, that, we, that they may see and know, may consider and understand together that the hand of the Lord has done this. The Holy One of Israel has created it. When you taste good things, when you enjoy a refreshing drink, do you give praise to God? Do you pause and reflect? And say, this is an expression of God's grace and God's goodness to me. They're called to remember. They're called to see, to consider, and understand. And they're trying to trace that goodness, that blessing back 
to its original source. You see, just like the defeat of the enemies, the curtain is pulled back so that the victory and the provision can be seen in light of their true source. See, that it's, it's, it's not that good things aren't good. I, I, that's one thing I love about the Bible. I think sometimes we think that um, if we truly love the Lord, then we won't experience the needs of this life or we won't care about the things of this life and, and so on and so forth. It's, and it, it's actually the, the other way around. As, as you experience the goodness of God, then you get to see all of the world and all of his good gifts as a provision from his loving hand. It's the problem is when you invert the order, when you begin to value those things more than him, and when you don't trace the crumbs back to the original source, to the goodness, the good goodness of God and the one who rules and reigns over all things. He says, I'm doing these things that you might see and know, consider and understand that the hand of the Lord is on us. So how do you have courage? you're in school, how do you have courage? You know, you're a teenager, a college student, how do you have courage? How do you have courage in the workplace? How do you have courage at home? How do you have courage to share the gospel? How do you have courage to go to the ends of the earth with the gospel? I know that many in this church are involved in gospel ministry and impacts the world. How do you get the courage to do that? How can you stand firm in your faith. Are you going to dig down deep? Grab your bootstraps, pull them up a little bit. Or will you with the eyes of faith look to the God who promised that I will never leave you nor forsake you. Look to Emmanuel, the greatest gift of all. The only reason I would take my young boys gator hunting that day was because I knew who was with us. I'm from small town Mississippi, but I know my limits. I went because of who was with us. And so who is on your side? Where have you placed your trust? Is it the God who spoke the world into existence? Or is it something that you fashion with your own hand? And that you bow down to and serve and prop up when it might topple over? Where are you placing your trust? But perhaps you're here and you are trusting in the Lord, but you feel inadequate. You're a bit worn out, burnt out, weary. You ever feel like you're inadequate, like you're not enough? Well, the consistent solution that God offers to the failures and inadequacies of his people in the Bible is not look inside. It's not dig down deep. It's not try harder, but I will be with you. It is Emmanuel, God with us, the greatest gift of all. Remember in Exodus chapter 3, Moses says, who am I that I should go to Pharaoh? God says, no, 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 you're special. And he says, I will be with you. Joshua, when the leadership goes to Joshua, he says, be strong and courageous. Why? Because I will be with you as I was with Moses. Uh, Jacob, when he was leaving the land to go because Esau wanted to kill him in, in Genesis 28, 15, he was told, God said, I will go with you. He said, if you go with me and come back, I will give you 10% of everything. Or Genesis 46, verse 4, when he was going to go down and live with Joseph and be provided for by Joseph, God said, I will go with you and I will bring you up. Deuteronomy 20, verse 1, don't be afraid when you go and fight against the nations because I will be with you. As you walk through the valley of the shadow of death, Psalm 23, why do you fear no evil? For thou art with me, thy rod and thy staff, they comfort me. Our passage here, Isaiah 41, verses 8 through 10, I am with you. Isaiah 43, verse 2. Isaiah 43, verse 5, I will be with you. 
And as the Son of God, our Lord Jesus Christ, took on flesh, he shall be called what? Emmanuel, God with us. And even as you go to the ends of the earth, Matthew 28, to make disciples of the nations, he says, for I am with you. Even to the ends of the earth. Or as Paul, this is in Acts 18, God tells him, he says, stay. Don't be afraid to preach the gospel here. Live here for a while, because I'm with you. You see, you come to God wanting all kinds of things. I do it too. Come to God wanting all sorts of things. If I was smarter, I'd serve God. If I had more money, I'd give more to God. If I was more gifted, then I would serve God. If If I knew how to share the gospel, then I would share it better. I would share it more. But God holds before you the greatest gift of all. He says, this is my son in whom I am well pleased. Emmanuel, God with us. But what about the coastlands and the nations? The objects of judgment in this passage. Well, if you flip the page over and you get to chapter 42, what do you see? The very redemption that's being held out before the Israelites is the very redemption of the peoples. The coastlands will wait for the law of the servant of God. The victory of the people of God is the victory for the people from every tongue, tribe, people, and nation. One hope, one salvation. The coastlands here, they're the object of his wrath. But in 42 verse 4, they're the ones who wait on the law. And as Zion is lifted up, the nations will flock to her. Why? Because Jesus Christ is too great and he's too glorious to just be the redeemer and the savior of Jacob. His salvation shall span to the end of the earth. If you're outside of Christ, you have every reason to fear. But for those who forsake their idols, who forsake their own works, and indeed rest and trust in Jesus Christ as he is freely offered, you have every reason to be strong and to be courageous, for you have a sure and immovable hope, even if you pass through the valley of the shadow of death. Lord, we thank you that you don't encourage us by telling us to look to ourselves because that would be empty comfort indeed. We thank you that even in the face of our inadequacies and in our struggles and our trials, you meet us there and you say, take heart, be strong and courageous for I am with you. I pray that these people would know that and feel that even now for your name's sake. Amen.